This afternoon we've come to Lord's Day 11 in the Catechism. In uh, connection with that, we're going to read from Hebrews chapter 7, the verses 11 through 28. Hebrews chapter 7, the verses 11 through 28. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now we turn to Scripture as we confess and summarize it in the Catechism. Lord's Day 11, page 526. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is Savior? Because He saves us from all our sins and because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. Do those who seek their salvation or well-being in saints in themselves or anywhere else, also believe in the only Savior, Jesus? 
No. Though they boast of him in words, they in fact deny the only Savior, Jesus. For one of two things must be true. Either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or those who by true faith accept the Savior must find in him all that is necessary for their salvation. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes our expressions or phrases that are in danger of being overused, we call that a cliche. A cliche is an expression or a phrase that has been used so often that it no longer has any meaning to us. Now that can happen in our faith life as well. Sometimes we use expressions or Phrases that, that we use so often that they lose their meaning. And it's not because they're inherently meaningless, but because we've used them without thinking. So this afternoon's Lord's Day has a phrase in it that is often used. And that phrase is, saves us from all our sins. What does that actually mean, to be saved from all your sins? It's a strange phrase if you think about it, isn't it? What, what, what do we mean when we say that? To be saved from sin. Are we talking about the punishment of sin? Are we talking about the effect of sin? And what is sin anyway? It's one of those phrases, those words and phrases from the catechism that we sometimes throw out without really thinking about them. So this afternoon, we're going to consider the work of our Lord Jesus, who saves us from all our sins. And we'll see that this claim is exclusive regarding the Savior and inclusive regarding the saved. So if we're going to uncover the meaning, again, in this phrase, if we're going to consider what it is that Jesus has done for us, we first need to consider the exceeding sinfulness of sin. There are many words used to describe sin in the Old and the New Testament. The words used to describe sin refer to things such as turning away from the path, missing the mark, lawlessness, rebellion, wickedness, unfaithfulness, vanity, perversion. You can hear these words brimming with righteous indignation, trying to describe and pin down what sin really is. At its heart, sin is a calculated, brazen, self-centered defiance. And sin is absolute in its wickedness. There is no sliding scale of sinfulness with people that are mainly good with a little bit of evil on one side and people that are mainly evil with a little bit of good on the other side and everyone else somewhere in the middle, moving in one direction or the other. There is no sliding scale of sinfulness The Bible doesn't recognize that. Like more things in life, it's binary. Either you're completely committed to God or you are completely opposed to him. Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. 
And in the letter of James, we read, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Now, we tend to shrink back from that kind of absolute language. We think that it would be reasonable for us to get part credit for the things that we do right that are not outright rebellion. But that's not how it works. Sin is to deviate from God's law. What does God's law demand from us? It demands love, doesn't it? You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So any failure to love God completely shows rebellion in our hearts. And this is the common condition of all human beings by nature. Paul writes about that in Romans 1 when he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him. That's hatred. That's what it looks like. To know God, but to not honor him, to not give thanks to him. Now, on the surface, the word hatred might seem strong, maybe too strong to describe the act of not loving. And so we we are inclined to distance ourselves from that. But what about apathy? How often are we not apathetic towards the things of God? We lose interest so quickly in God and in His Word. Sometimes we tune out during the preaching of the Word or we fall asleep during the worship services. Now, there might be legitimate reasons why some people fall asleep. Sometimes they've had a difficult night with a sick child. Maybe they've just had a a really difficult week. Maybe they're on some kind of medication. Maybe they're recovering from an illness. There could be all sorts of reasons why people fall asleep. But sometimes it's just apathy. And apathy is a form of hatred too. It is the unwillingness to see God's glory and a lack of motivation to turn toward it. It shows something about the condition of our hearts. We might not think that we hate God, but we don't love Him either. We're apathetic, just like the world in which we live. And as we saw previously, there's no middle ground. So these are the effects of sin in our hearts. Sin comes out of the heart. In the Bible, the heart is the source of everything that we do. And Jeremiah 17 verse 9 warns us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus taught that out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. And he said the good person out of the good treasure in his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. So these things reveal what is in our hearts. Sin has corrupted us totally. We call that the doctrine of total depravity. And this this has often been dismissed because it's misunderstood. Total depravity does not mean that we are as wicked as we could possibly be. That's not what it means. God in His grace still holds back many people from their sins. But total depravity means that every part of us is totally contaminated. 
The Apostle Paul wrote, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And it is true for us all. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Elsewhere, Paul writes that to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Are you starting to see how deep this problem runs? Therefore, by nature, we are totally unable to please God. In fact, unable to even make sense out of any of this. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, Then he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Scripture says that before conversion, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And apart from God's grace, we cannot live in sin. We cannot please God. We're neither willing nor able to please God. And one of the consequences of this, of God's wrath in response to this, is that he gives people over to sin and to its consequences. There is a natural order to life. There are natural consequences to sin that that flow out of the decisions that we make. Many examples, you don't need to look far. The, The sexually immoral can pick up a disease. Those who use drugs may ruin their bodies. Those who seek out pornography will ruin their present or future marriage. Proverbs 5 verse 22 says that the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. You feel that tightness. He is held fast in the cords of a sin. He knows something is wrong, but he cannot get out. There are natural consequences to many sins that show us glimpses of God's hatred of sin and his punishment of it. Don't you agree that there's something profoundly sad about that? Consider the damage that sin does to people's lives, even to our lives. You have this small window of opportunity in your life to show love to your spouse. So many people miss it. You have this small window of opportunity to shape your children before they grow up. So many people miss that one too. You have a small window of opportunity to mature limited opportunities in life. And so many people ignore those. Time moves on. They get old. They've never really grown in their faith. And if you don't grow in the faith, you will not mature. Isn't that sad? And even if you haven't experienced it quite that way in your own life, don't you mourn the pain and the suffering caused by sin in the lives of others? Maybe you know people like that. People that are not believers. People that live with profound pain and dysfunction in their lives. People who live with constant conflict. They're often scared They don't know what will happen next. They have no job security. They have no future. They are, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, with no hope, and without God in the world. That's dreadful. And the worst punishment of sin is death. Scripture says, as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men sinned. The wages of sin is death. First of all, spiritual death, life out of communion with God. Then physical death. And unless a person turns to God in repentance and faith before then, eternal death. Eternal death is when the corruption of sin is experienced in all of its fullness. 
When the cords of sin have been completely tightened, when all the brakes are taken off, when the full wrath of God against sin is fully experienced, when the separation from God and all of his gifts is complete, that's death. Ultimate corruption of body and soul in all of its fullness. We saw at the beginning that the phrase, Jesus saves us from all of our sins, can be a cliche if you use it thoughtlessly, which is why we need to spend time on these things this afternoon to make sure that that phrase does not become a cliche so that we fully understand what it is that he saves us from. This afternoon we read from Hebrews chapter 7. It is clear that even under the Old Testament ceremonial regulations, the animal sacrifices, the rituals were never enough. Why not? Because they were brought by humans, and humans continued to sin. So there was never an end to the sacrifices. Even the priest himself had to offer a sacrifice for his own sin first before he could intercede for anyone else. That is why the Father brought the Son. He sent his Son because Jesus was different. He was not like these priests. He was not like these descendants of Aaron taken from among the Levites. In our reading, the writer compares him to Melchizedek. Melchizedek, this mysterious figure who appears in the Old Testament, who was a priest even though he was not a Levite. And the point of comparison here is that Jesus was not a regular priest. The regular priests were priests simply because of their ancestry. But Jesus, says verse 16, is a priest forever. How do we know that he is a priest forever? The passage gives us two reasons. First, his indestructible life. He is, as Psalm 110 predicted, a priest forever. He is a permanent priest because, as verse 24 reminds us, he goes on forever. Because he's the very Son of God, he is eternal. He shares in God's own indestructible life. So his priesthood will never end. His intercession will never cease. His life will never diminish. He continues forever and ever and ever and ever. It will never end. The second reason why Jesus is a priest forever is because God said so. God actually swore an oath. He will not change his mind. He will not revoke his word. He will not go back on his promise. Jesus is a priest forever. There is a permanent, unchanging security in his priesthood. That is why salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else, as the catechism puts it. By its very nature, his priesthood could not be temporary. By its very nature, the covenant cannot be broken. If it were to be temporary, how could God have given the life of his son? The very cost of this offering tells us something about how seriously God takes it, how permanent this is. And it shows that Jesus alone can save us from all our sins. The claim is exclusive regarding the Savior because God has no other son to give. There is no higher price that he could pay than that. The passage, therefore, encourages us to draw near to God through Christ. And verses 24 and 25 of our reading say that he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, this, this, is, this is liturgical language. To draw near to God is an Old Testament expression that means to 
come to God to worship. In the Old Testament, when you wanted to draw near to God, it was an involved process. You had to do so through many regulations. You had to get it right. Because if you didn't, you would die. But now we approach through Christ. The form of worship is different, but not the content, because the basic idea of drawing near to a holy God is still there. It is still about approaching God. And in that sense, the externals of the law are abolished, but not the basic principle of approaching God. We now do that through Christ directly. Everything else was a shadow. Everything else was building up to this one great priest who stands in the center of Scripture. So there's an implied command here as well. We must draw near through God. We cannot do it in any other way. The catechism got this quite right. Salvation is not to be sought or to be found in anyone else. We are to draw near and to do so through Christ and Christ alone. Do not ignore him. Do not ignore him. Hebrews 2 verse 3 warns us, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And Hebrews 10 warns us, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Later he warns us, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we refuse him who warns us from heaven. God has provided an exclusive means for us to draw near to him. In the words of the Belgian Confession, Article 26, it has pleased God to give us his son as our advocate. Let us then not leave him for another or even look for another without ever finding one. Verse 25 says that Christ always lives to make intercession for us. What does that involve? Well, in any case, his, his sacrifice stands as a permanent answer to our sin. Anytime that we sin, anytime that we sin, anytime that we fail, anytime that we fall short, the accomplished sacrifice of Christ testifies that there is forgiveness for us. That is why we pray in Jesus' name at the end of every prayer. But he continues to minister to us in other ways as well. Because of the sacrifice of the blood of Christ, we are also renewed and empowered by the Spirit of Christ. Think of Lord's Day 26 here. Through the Spirit, we have his resurrection life in us. So when he intercedes for us, he's not just dealing with past sin. He's not just pointing to his death. He is pointing us to his life, his resurrection life. He enables us to live as God's children. There is a connection between his resurrection and his intercession. And that is also brought forward in Romans 8 verse 34 when Paul writes, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And then he says, More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is doing what? Who is interceding for us. So this makes sense. If he's a complete Savior, we have everything we need in him. As a form for the celebration of the Lord's Supper puts it, by the Spirit who dwells in Christ as the head, and in us as his members, we have true communion with him and share in all his riches, life eternal, righteousness, and glory. Consider this, because he is an eternal high priest, his service for us never ends. In fact, it doesn't even say that he remains as a priest, but it simply says he remains 
It draws attention to his permanence. Think about this. He's always there. There is no moment in which we do not experience his saving power. There is no time when his salvation is not applied to us. There's no time when his love is not there for us. There's no time when his blood does not intercede for us. There's no time when the Father does not answer him and the Holy Spirit does not go forth from the Father and the Son to sustain us in this life. There's no part of our experience, whether physical, emotional, or spiritual, old age, disease, anxiety, struggles, disappointments, pain, suffering, sorrow, nothing that lies outside of this one word, uttermost. No time in our life that is intercession does not apply. No time when this is not true, that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He's always able to save under all circumstances. Nothing lies outside of that. Jesus saves us from all of our sins. And we've seen that this claim is exclusive regarding the Savior. We'll not also briefly see that this claim is inclusive regarding the saved. This verse 25 that we just read really stands out in this passage. The intercession of Christ could not possibly be made clearer than it is here. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. But somehow we can't get this idea into our heads. People have always wanted to put in some of their own efforts to reassure themselves. Some have fallen into legalism or moralism and they try to derive their assurance from that. The Catechism refers to that in the second question and answer when it says that some seek their well-being in themselves. So before we move on, let us acknowledge that it's not just the Roman Catholics that are under the microscope here. Protestants can fall into this trap as well. But the, the Catechism here raises the issue of Roman Catholicism because the Roman Catholic practice of prayers to the saints is probably the most widespread example of finding assurance elsewhere. That's why it makes sense for the Catechism to raise that question now. So what are saints? In Roman Catholic theology, saints are people who have led unusually holy lives during their time on earth. And usually then they're canonized after a number of years by the church. They're recognized, and then Roman Catholics will pray to them. Now, if you speak to Roman Catholics about this or read the sorts of things that they write, they don't regard this as idolatry. They see it more as a form of asking a friend to pray for you. And we do that too, right? We did that this morning for some of our members as well. As they understand that the saints have led such good lives that they can intercede for us on the basis of their merits. In fact, their merits are added to those of Christ in something called the treasury of merits. And this is not a straw man set up by the Protestants so that they can make the Roman Catholics look bad. This is straight out of the catechism of the Catholic Church. Listen to this. This is a quote. In the treasury are the prayers and good works of all the saints, all those who have followed in the footsteps of Christ the Lord and by his grace have made their lives holy and carried out the mission the Father entrusted to them. 
In this way, they attained their own salvation and at the same time cooperated in saving their brothers in the unity of the mystical body. End quote. The 16th century Council of Trent, which was set up as a response to the Reformation, said the following. It said that bishops should instruct the faithful diligently in matters relating to intercession and invocation of the saints, to invoke them and to have recourse to their prayers, assistance, and support in order to obtain favors from God through His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. End quote. But think about what this means. In 1 John 3, verse 1, it says, See what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. But if Roman Catholic theology is true, it means that God listens to some children before he listens to others. He might not listen to you if you pray on your own, so you had better enlist a saint to help you. But think about it. If we already have someone who is able to save to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him because he gave his life, Why would we need that? Why would Christ not listen to us if he has already died for us? Would all children not equally be children of the Father? That is why the Catechism says those who by true faith accept the Savior must find in him all that is necessary for their salvation. You notice it doesn't distinguish between the those. Those. Those who by true faith accept the Savior. It doesn't specify, well, that only applies to some people but not to others. No. It says... Those, the focus is on the word all in all those who by true faith accept the Savior. Now, it is true that some people are at different stages of their walk of life or faith compared to other people. After all, to be sanctified means to be made holy. There are degrees of sanctification in life, but there are no degrees of sonship Let us settle that once and for all. There are degrees of sanctification. There are no degrees of sonship. Those who are at the beginning of their walk of faith are just as much God's children as those who are near the end. That is why we need to be careful of how we speak to those who are new to the faith. We need to treat them as equals. Not as people that might have something slightly wrong with them. In fact, we are to treat all people as equals. We don't know which people God and his good pleasure might bring to faith. So you should always be prepared for the possibility that the person you were speaking to behind the counter or in the store or behind the service desk or on the phone could be sitting beside you in the pew one day. And would that make you behave any differently if they did? Would you rejoice and be glad to see them? If they showed up one Sunday, or would you be embarrassed because of how you carried on? We are inclusive in theory, but how are we in practice? Jesus saves us from all our sins. This claim is absolutely exclusive regarding the Savior. But let us not forget that it is inclusive regarding the saved. God can save all sorts of people. Just look around you. Just look at this church. God can save all sorts of people, all sorts of ages, all sorts of types, all sorts of backgrounds. God saves all sorts of people. And now we finally understand what it means that he saves us from all our sins. This is not a cliche. This means that he saves us in all possible aspects of sin. The terrible punishments for sins. The corrosive effects of sin. The separation caused by sin. 
and he saves us. That is, all those who turn to him in faith. This is the Savior we need. This is the Savior that we have. This is a complete Savior. So turn to him. When you accept him by true faith, you will find in him all that is necessary for your salvation. Amen.